Hello, everyone. My name is Frank Place. I'm the director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, or PIM for short. And I'm very, very excited to welcome you to this uh, PIM webinar on the investment effects of forest rights devolution, how community tenure is facilitating investment in the commons for inclusive growth. This work is part of the PIM portfolio under our research flagship five on governance of natural resources. And our speaker today is Dr. Stephen Lowry. He's senior associate in the Equity, Gender, and Tenure Research Program at the Center for International Forestry Research, or CIFOR. Now, I've known Steve for more than 25 years, and I have to say in those 25 years, he's had quite an illustrious <laughs> career. And so bear with me as I give you a brief, brief background on, on Steve. So Steve, uh, Stephen has published uh, studies and scholarly articles on the social, economic, and ecological effects of forest rights devolution, the impacts of land rights formalization on agricultural investment and productivity, and tenure factors affecting adoption of forest landscape restoration practices in, in Africa, among other topics. Steve received a PhD from the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1988. And since then, he's had many different uh, positions, and I'll briefly mention some of those. He held senior positions in the Ford Foundation, including assistant representative for the Foundation's Office for South Africa and Namibia, and regional representative for the Foundation's Office uh, for the Middle East and North Africa in the, in the 1990s uh, and early 2000s. He was also president of Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. He was a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Hauser Center for Nonprofit Organizations. He headed a USAID-funded program in, uh, in South Sudan and based in Juba, assisting the government there to develop a national land policy. He also served as global practice leader for land tenure and property rights, property rights at DAI, a Washington-based consulting group. Following that, he joined uh, the CGIR. He joined C4 in 2014 uh, as research director of C4's Forests and Governance Program and then subsequently as director of the Equity, Gender, and Tenure Research Program. Uh, from starting in November, he relocated here in Washington, also still holding those positions, uh, to join us here closer with PIM, where we were happy to host him for, for, for several years. Uh, and he helped co-lead our flagship on governance and natural resources. Uh, and so with that, uh, we're very happy to, to welcome him uh, to, the, to the webinar. And here is, uh, his, his uh, thoughts and uh, about his, you know, many of the research that he's done with C4 and with him over the last few years. And, and before I hand it over to Steve, let me remind everyone how we proceed on our webinars. So Stephen will begin shortly with a presentation that you will see on your screens, and it will last for about 30 minutes. During the presentation, we invite all of you listeners to send in questions via the chat window on the right side of your screens. We collate the questions and group any that are similar in content uh, before posing them to Stephen. And uh, he will then answer the questions as we pose, it to, pose them to him. And we handle it this way to make the best use of our one hour together. So we, and we also are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live event. So with that, now I'll hand it over to, to Stephen. Let's go ahead, please. Thanks, Frank, for the wonderful introduction. And uh, I just want to start by providing a little context uh, to this work that I'm presenting today, that we're discussing today. And many of you who worked on questions of, of uh, the commons and the management of the commons uh, will be mindful that much of the research over the sort of last 20 to 25 years has focused on the question of rights devolution. Votes natural resources, particularly forests in the global south and elsewhere, uh, is pretty much owned by the state. And so uh, there's been this quite active program, really partly a social movement, uh, partly uh, research, uh, that's been considering questions of really the benefits of devolving rights, potential benefits of devolving rights uh, to the local level. And some of those benefits that are anticipated or argued about uh, include, well, the outcomes might be better. There'll be better forest cover, uh, more sustainable management of natural resources, forests, fisheries, pasture land. Uh, when people who live and work close to the 
the ground, if you will, uh, have a chance to apply their knowledge, experience, and judgment in coordinating their actions and in, in ways that improve source management, and sort of logically uh, in, uh, in in ways that are more efficient and effective than centrally controlled uh, governance. So, but the, the focus has been on advocacy and the debates around will the outcomes be better environmentally and socially. Now we're in a position, and this is what the research looks at, to consider in the light of successful efforts to devolve rights in many countries, including some of the countries that we're uh, going to consider here today, uh, there's been success in devolving rights, really beginning uh, in some of the countries here in the early 90s, uh, late 90s, and in every case we'll be talking about today, it's been several years uh, since rights were actually devolved to communities. And so now we're looking at questions around, well, what happened? And specifically with respect to the investment effects, what kinds of investments have, uh, uh, if any, okay, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, a hypothetical question, uh, have uh, resulted from the rights devolution. Uh, have the kinds of benefits with respect to environmental outcomes, investment, livelihood development, uh, better incomes been realized. And so that's at the heart. Uh, that was the major motive for this research. This research, as Frank mentioned, is part of uh, a body of work that's been supported by Tim over the last few years that has looked at, in various ways, the investment effects of rights devolution. A number of products have been produced, including uh, a couple that we'll point out to you at the end of the webinar. We have a guide, for instance, on investing in commonly held resources. And much of the presentation today uh, is based on a, uh, a, a journal article in press entitled, Is Community Tenure Facilitating Investment in Community Held Resources for Inclusive Development? So that's really uh, the context that I wanted to share with you. So, so what about investment? Why is investment important? I think some of these uh, points are pretty obvious. Uh, significant funding is needed. Uh, to meet the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, reducing global environmental degradation and mitigating climate change requires significant uh, private capital. We think often principally of public investment, but changes in how businesses do their business uh, in relation to their footprint or impacts on the environment are very important considerations. Business as usual is not going to be acceptable uh, for much longer. And private enterprises, from small firms to large corporations, uh, must make fundamental changes in agricultural, forestry, and land use practices that the agricultural, forestry, and land use sector is, is going to contribute to holding the global temperature increase, 1.5 centigrade degree centigrade. Being mindful, for instance, that forests represent about 20% of, of uh, forest lost or land use related, sorry, uh, climate. Uh, uh, Carbon losses represent about 20% of the of the uh, climate budget with respect to uh, release of carbon into the atmosphere, and the restorative potential, the climate mitigation potential for forestry, particularly, is quite considerable. So, alongside restructuring of land use practices, there's technological innovation, regulatory reforms, and improved supply chain management will be required. And that's the whole question of supply chain management with respect to serving, uh, pursuing climate goals is, is, is quite an important topic, one with what I won't speak to today. So here in sum, importantly, however, there are large barriers to investment in sustainable use of natural resources in developing countries. And maybe especially in contexts where natural resources such as forests, pastoral and fisheries are held and used in common. So here I wanna speak a little bit about those perceived I'd say commonly or really popularly perceived barriers. Some of them have real validity, and they're in many cases widely accepted, and as such, uh, can represent sort of uh, uh, you know can lead investors, particularly in the private sector, to be quite cautious about when they consider uh, the prospects of investing uh, in contexts where people hold resources commonly. So number one is commonly held resources are not subject to sale or sale or, pur or purchase. This is a quite a, uh, a long-standing sort of uh, principle in economics. Uh, and uh, 
that where you know an investor can't hold collateral, uh, then uh, then that's an issue, uh, and that could impede investment. Um, there have been some remedies to the collateral problem in many contexts, including uh, with respect to getting finance to poor people, as many of you know. Uh, microfinance uh, models typically don't include, uh, require uh, uh, collateral as a condition. There are other ways of securing that loan. There's been progress in this field, but still it's a factor when you're looking at large scale, uh, potentially large scale investments uh, in natural resources. That, then the second point is the varying aims of right holders within a commons can complicate achievement of consensus about uh, investment goals. And so, you know, communities are, are not homogeneous, typically. They're uh, quite heterogeneous. Uh, there's uh, divisions in wealth, uh, uh, expectations, uh, livelihood goals. Uh, there could be divisions along uh, uh, ethnic and caste uh, lines, and including in some of the countries that we'll consider here today. And so reaching consensus and agreement is a very typical sort of issue with respect to um, uh, governing common pool resources. And a lot of work has been done on that question, as many of you will be aware of. And then there's this sort of developmental question, point three, that community institutions may lack the capacity, protocols, and experience to negotiate and management investment partnerships and, and commercial enterprises. Uh, this is sort of be, to be expected. This is sort of the classic capacity development uh, challenge. And a lot of organizations and governments have experience in addressing it. But importantly, and this is sort of an opportunity, this fourth point, it may be seen by, uh, on the one hand, as a constraint, um, as a barrier. But it, if we sort of, sort of wrestle with this last <laughs> issue, that's noted here, then uh, we can realize some potential breakthroughs, I think. And this is that the social character of commons ownership requires that benefits be shared across the entire community of right holders. This is a very important point, often in the form of investments in infrastructure, education, and employment opportunities. And so this may be obvious at the local level that, okay, here's a common pool resource. We as community members hold, own that resource collectively. And as individual right holders, we are entitled to a certain amount of income and benefit from uh, that may accrue from this resource. So this is understood locally, but it's often not understood by outside investors. And so understanding the potential implications of working with organizations representing a community or a collective of right holders is a challenge. And in fact, our guide to investing in the commons, uh, which we'll be sharing with you, uh, speaks very directly to this, to this question of uh, collective ownership and collective benefit. Okay. So here uh, we, in looking at the literature, once again, I, I, I noted this sort of draft uh, journal article, we sort of cited four key conditions that uh, when present can reduce risks of course, we know that investment is very much about risk on the one hand, assurance on the other, uh, assurance that you know steps have been taken to mitigate risk in ways that uh, will enable the flow of investment uh, uh, funding. So there are four conditions that when present can reduce risk and provide investors with assurances they need to invest in community forest institutions. I just want to pause here. What do we mean by community forest institutions? For us, it's a bit of an umbrella term that speaks to the variety of institutions at the local level, typically, that are involved in managing, governing, and, and, uh, uh, and investing uh, as business enterprises in the commonly used resource. So by way of example, they would include in Nepal, one of the countries we'll speak about, community forest user groups, okay, which are the right holders. Okay, the user group is the right holder. We'll have a governing and governance structure and leadership with that structure, uh, that organization, its roles and powers often stipulated or backed up by law. Okay, uh, there'll be, uh, and that community forest user group, in fact, can form itself into a business enterprise. So it becomes, at the same time, a, a community forest enterprise. Okay, so we're interested in 
in how it would how they operate and function uh, as as entities that um, generate uh, uh, financial benefit uh, through uh, utilization and often in, uh, through uh, in the context of partnerships with outside investors. So they can simultaneously be community forest enterprises. Then there can be community forest enterprises that are outside entities and they're, that are more traditional businesses that are in partnership with community forest user groups. So anyway, it's a, it, it can represent sort of different kinds of formations of, uh, of uh, organization and uh, enterprises that are organizations that we look at in our work. So number one here is among the four key conditions are the presence of clear, secure, and sufficiently broad rights. And we know that this is the key, the key idea here that what's happened, you know, a condition is rights to evolution. Are those rights sufficiently robust, secure, and so on? And we find that they are not always uh, sufficiently robust or Local people can't really exercise them, or they're diminished or compromised in some ways. And that's something that uh, investors and communities and advocates need to be aware of. And I'll, we'll, we'll offer a few examples of that in the course of the presentation. The relations of trust and strong social networks within communities and between communities and external actors is vital. And we find that in the early days of you know, post-evolution, as people are looking for, come, come to understand locally that outside investment, technology, and management skills can help them generate more income in a sustainable fashion from their resource. Uh, there's also a certain amount of, well, there's a lack of familiarity with the private sector uh, generally, and a certain amount of, of suspicion with respect to the uh, uh, goals and behavior, uh, it's, a trust, it's a trust issue. On the other hand, private sector investors are unfamiliar with local communities and how to negotiate and how to work with them. And in, in sort of a typical business relationship, they both have different expect, expectations of what a fair deal looks like, okay? Uh, community members may expect, hey, you know, this is our resource now, we should realize higher benefit than what these people are offering. And, on the other side, the business may say, well, the community doesn't understand the costs that we're bearing uh, to make this happen. So these are typical, you find this in lots of relationships, but in situations where there's lack of experience on both parties in dealing, uh, working, uh, you know, negotiating deals in these particular contexts of collective ownership, um, then we find that intermediaries can be very, very important in explaining each side one to the other. That's something we can talk about. Uh, number three, clear and enforceable rules and procedures governing the use and management of forests and associated enterprises. Sort of stands a reason. I'm not going to say anything more about it at this point. <coughs> and then sufficient technological negotiation and management capacity within the community. And that's really something I was just speaking to a moment ago. That capacity is vital and this has been a target of investment by uh, donors and NGOs in building that capacity. So our research looked at uh, the experience of, 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 of what happens you know, of investment in commonly held resources post rights reform in four countries. Guatemala, it's the case of the Mayan Biosphere Reserve Community Forest Concessions. Mexico, the Hitos and indigenous communities. Um, I should say about 60% of all forests in Mexico are under the control of the Hitos, which are collective ownership models. Uh, Nepal, the community forest user groups. Uh, there are about 20,000 community forest user groups in Nepal, managing about 40 to 45% of the country's national forestry estate. And then Namibia, which we're really looking at here, the, the community wildlife concessions, not forests, but wildlife ownership. In, in our presentation today, I'm focusing on uh, Guatemala and Nepal, really out of in the interest of time. Uh, they all have common sort of experience and it's relevant to it gets in our, into our summary, all four countries. They all have differences that are interesting. But uh, today I'll be focusing on the Guatemala and Nepal cases. And here's our methods, review of scholarly and gray literature, uh, collation of information from fieldwork visits, 
Uh, we spent a lot of time, especially in Nepal and uh, Guatemala, as it's turned out, workshops, observation, interviews, and document analysis. And then financial data, which we find often very hard still to get at, get to, uh, but we've been able to uh, to uh, to look into financial reports from donors and reports of user groups. And so this this slide just really illustrates the point that there's been this process of rights uh, devolution in the forest sector, uh, and we see on the right hand side these sort of tenure types that tend to uh, represent uh, a, a greater or, or larger bundle of rights. You see the, on the far right, it's collective title to land and forests, which we see increasingly uh, in Latin America, particularly extended uh, to indigenous communities. Uh, rights devolved to community user groups, which would represent the sort of default case, and community concessions, long-term leases, which in fact represents the Guatemala case. We see here that Overall, comparing Africa, Asia, and Latin America, the processes of rights devolution tend to be more advanced, if you will. Uh, more rights uh, as a generalization. This movement is stronger in Latin America. But Asia, and on a sort of selected country basis, there's been some significant progress. There's been limited progress in Africa, arguably with respect to certainly the range of rights that we're seeing devolved in Latin America. And Asia, and, and this this uh, uh, chart represents that sort of phenomena, that, that comparison. So here, I want to talk about really the, a key point is the the importance. And I, I guess I can't emphasize it enough. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but there needs to be a strong state a commitment at the, at, by the state to rights devolution, and that needs to be backed up by uh, not only statements of policy, but statements of, you know, but meaningful, meaningful legal reforms and development of the regulatory framework uh, uh, to uh, ensure that those rights are effectively devolved and that, and the regulations would also state, for instance, what the devolving rights to communities implies for the, for the uh, rights uh, of uh, the residual rights of the state. Once again, you know, in property rights, there, no one party holds all the rights. Uh, the state, the public has an interest, that, for instance, that uh, that land and resources will be used sustainably or, or will not be used in ways that degrade the environment or pollute the environment. That's a, that ensuring that outcome is a state role. But the whole kind of legal regime with respect to property rights governance needs to be redefined, community in relation to state. And that requires, that in and of itself, requires significant investment in public policy and legal reform. And so here's, in each of the four countries, and this is the, the Guatemala case, which is a little bit exceptional because it was linked to a peace process and it was not involved a law that affects forest use and management in the entire country, but in a particular area. And where they've applied a particular tenure model, which in this case is the, the uh, uh, community uh, forest concession. So, uh, and that really developed out of this process that began in 1985, created the protected area system. 1990, the mine biosphere reserve was established. Then it was agreed uh, by 96 that 100,000 hectares would be set aside within, really at the core of the mine biosphere reserve as uh, forest land for communities where 12 uh, community forest concessions of about 10 to 12,000 hectares each, quite significant land areas, were granted to communities as a 25-year lease right. So you think of sort of a traditional timber concession of 20,000 hectares, 10,000 hectares for timber production. This is an analogous model, a quite familiar model, where the leaseholder, the right holder, is a community. And I think that's a very innovative approach in other countries in Latin America, especially, have been looking at this model. Um, and it's overall proved quite successful. I'll just say very importantly that there are conditions associated with the lease. And among those conditions uh, were that uh, each uh, community concession 
uh, uh, secure for uh, stewardship council uh, certification of a management plan for the forest at, within three years of the grinding of the lease. And this is a condition for retaining the lease. And the results have been uh, quite positive uh, with respect to the outcomes. So here, I wanna talk a little bit in this, in this slide, sorry for all the words, uh, but the basic notion here, the key theme is that investment comes in various forms. It comes from uh, the private sector, uh, the public sector through donors and the governments, and it comes from uh, inward investment by the community forest uh, uh, institutions uh, themselves. And then of course, NGOs have been key in this. And so this gives you a sense of the kinds of investments that have been made and they're quite uh, significant. Um, if you can all take that in, I don't really want to give you a minute to kind of digest this. Um, but you see, for instance, looking at the uh, uh, role of NGOs over on the right-hand side, donors, this is typically donor funding, but much of these funds go into uh, training programs that develop forest management skills, uh, uh, the forest management plans, then the FSC certification. That was actually can be an expensive process. It could cost uh, $10,000 or more. Uh, given the scale of the uh, of the holding, uh, and then as the community moves into uh, sort of business uh, enterprises, which have been very very successful, often based on marketing of sustainably harvest uh, mahogany and cedar to the North American market, a number of uh, non-timber forest product products that are going to the, the sort of the floral industry in North America. Uh, these supply chains, uh, these business partnerships and relationships, uh, there's been investment in developing those. Uh, now, looking at the middle column, community forestry institutions, um, a lot of the funding that has been, a lot of the income that's been generated from these enterprise, enterprises have gone into uh, health and education investment uh, locally, significant job generation. We'll look at some of those outcomes in the next slide. Uh, uh, and then the last point here on, in the center is the importance of what we characterize as a secondary level institution, uh, which affiliates all of the uh, all the, the concessions uh, and represents them in negotiations with the public and private sectors. And in this case, it's the uh, ACOFOP, which is the Community Forest Association of Patan. Uh, and they, for instance, have been key in enabling nine of the communities uh, in, uh, establish a, a shared uh, timber mill uh, that's been established near Flores in Patan that is uh, uh, processing uh, the high value timber that's been coming out of uh, uh, Now, here's some of the investment outcomes in Guatemala. The deforestation rates uh, are equivalent. In fact, they're better uh, in more uh, some recent studies than the state managed protected areas uh, uh, that surround them. So there's, uh, you know, it's a, the deforestation rate is about 0.5% a year, which compared to the national rate of 1.5 is, is quite quite low. Um, that, uh, that there's also uh, wildlife populations have uh, not been affected by community logging and concessions, which is important. Um, so there's kind of a uh, impact on wildlife and the, the natural environment, but biodiversity specifically has not been negative. Um, here's some data on the number of daily jobs generated. There's significant job sharing among community members. All of them have uh, really a, a sense of entitlement, which is respected to have some kind of uh, uh, a job uh, in the uh, in, in, in one or more of the enterprises. Uh, and if that job is in full time, or, you know, if it, if it means that people will share parts of a full time job, then that's there's agreement typically on that. So some of them will work uh, two days a week, others will work one day a week, others will work two days a week, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, so we see data here that on um, increases in uh, household income, uh, and that uh, among some of the enterprises. Household income based on forest enterprises that range from 19 
uh, total income. Um, and that uh, I made note here uh, previously of uh, uh, Community Forest Enterprises capitalized uh, uh, a shared timber mill that has created jobs and diversified livelihood opportunities. So there have been significant benefits. The key issue, policy issue facing Guatemala, facing uh, the, the concessions is the 25-year the leases are coming up for renewal. And uh, so there's debate within country about, well, should those be renewed? Or are there other uses that uh, they might be sort of better suited for? Uh, and the case has been, I think, uh, well, many scholars uh, and researchers uh, believe has been uh, made that this has been a successful model and that the environmental as well as the social uh, outcomes have been uh, quite positive. Uh, but that, that debate and discussion is, is underway. Now, looking at Nepal, um, similarly, uh, you know, it's, it, it, well, it's actually different from uh, Guatemala. It's, there's been a national effort uh, that really was born in the uh, late 1970s in response to significant local activism and international advocacy that something needed to be done uh, with respect to the condition of Nepal's forest estate. There are very high rates of deforestation. Uh, the, the, the hill zone, uh, Himalayan uh, uh, hills uh, were becoming widely degraded significant loss of topsoil, degradation of water systems, um, and negative impacts on agriculture uh, and uh, livelihoods. And, and so there was advocacy around the notion of community rights, community-based uh, forestry, um, uh, where communities held stronger and clearer rights. This is really coincident with the whole common property movement. Uh, that we are familiar with in, 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 uh, globally and in the literature. So there was a decentralization in 1982 through the Decentralization Act. Um, there was uh, the effort to uh, transfer rights gain sort of momentum in the late 80s. And, um, and then a, a new multi-party parliamentary system in the early 90s strongly supports rights devolution agenda. Uh, in, in spending time in Nepal, I've been there sort of eight times in the last three and a half or four years, which is what is very evident is the centrality of, of forest policy to national politics. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the importance of forests as a source of income, uh, but also as key to the country's uh, environmental agenda and responsibilities is quite a strong focus of debate. Uh, it's also a sector where there's fairly significant public sector employment is, is uh, linked. And so there's a lot of public interest in that. Uh, well, and so we see in 95, 96, that uh, there was, uh, you know, initially the focus in Nepal was not rights to evolution for livelihoods, but life rights to evolution of uh, for better forest conservation outcomes. But in the 90s, there became recognition that, well, we needed to enable people to make a living uh, from sustainable forest management. And so there was enabling legislation that allowed the community user groups to start engaging in commercial partnerships and commercial forestry activities. So here's a similar slide. Uh, the range of, uh, of investments by different uh, sectors and I suppose you know the point here is that uh, many sectors have to be involved in this process, and they have to be in alignment. So once again, if the law is not supportive of the process, then very little is going to happen. If the regulators are not uh, understanding of the kind of requirements of, of a social enterprise and private enterprise with respect to utilizing the resources in a sustainable way, or overburden the uh, enterprises in ways that uh, reduce investment and reduce utilization and ultimately incomes, um, then that's a problem as well. 
so everyone needs to be in alignment. And I've, you know, we're developing this notion of really a, a social innovation system. We tend to focus on one element in the sort of architecture here, the community and what they need. But over the long term, every party needs to realign or think about what they need to do to ensure the community uh, investment and forestry management model is successful that can't be business as usual for any of the any of the parties. It's sort of very interesting to think through the implications for uh, each uh, of the parties in the context of a, of a rights evolution. It's not a matter of transferring rights to the community and then continuing to operate uh, as if, uh, well, things haven't changed fundamentally uh, because they have. And this is maybe particularly relevant to the roles of the state and its regulatory role. So here are some of the outcomes in the fall. Uh, there's been very uh, positive outcomes with respect to forest cover. Um, that there are actually uh, now 20,000 registered community forest user groups. Not all of them, in fact, minority of them are engaged in commercially related activities, but there's been significant revenue generated from forest-based activities uh, based on this 1915, sorry, 2013 study. Um, and then there are divisions that wealthier households are more likely to benefit from investments in, in private and public goods, well as forest households, will actually benefit from investments in common goods only. The law provides that uh, so-called lower castes uh, are entitled to 35% of all revenue generated by community forest user group activities. And this is generally observed uh, in terms of regulation. And that's an example of a positive uh, uh, regulation, uh, regulation with positive effect uh, that is part of the law uh, in the context of uh, you know, a society where there's uh, systemic uh, divisions and wealth uh, and power. Um, and then here the group uh, that's equivalent to ACOPOP in Guatemala, it's called ECOFAN, has become a very important advocacy group for community, uh, on behalf of the 20,000 community forests enterprises and have advocated for important subsequent reforms to law uh, that have enabled investment at the community level. And these include some of the laws uh, that are highlighted here, including the 2017 Industrial Enterprises Act, which makes it easier and less costly to establish small enterprises. So here, I want to move a little bit quickly here because I think uh, just being mindful of time, we sort of constructed a theory of change linking rights to evolution to financial investments, environmental and social outcomes. And it is in sort of three phases. And the point here is that investment readiness, a term that, uh, that we use, is something that takes place in phases and over time. Okay? And so the first phase here really is a set of investments uh, that on the right hand, uh, the blue colored uh, text uh, responds to some of these contextual issues and the barriers that we've spoken about. Uh, and so this is the rights to evolution uh, and community forest institutional formation element, which is phase one, recognition of community rights, forest award and registration of title and certificate, formation of community institutions to receive title, demarcation of community boundaries. That's the first step. The second step is investment in administrative and management capacity building. The key investors, it's really the donors, government, NGOs, community forest institutions. Then here's the range and the center of investments in building forests, natural resource governance, capacity, and so on and so forth. Community management plans, administrative, financial negotiation, business skills, and then the formation of these secondary level institutions and organizations like ACOFOB and FACOFUND, which we found in every case, in every country context that we looked at. And then this has the effect, we see, of changing some perceptions of risk. Tenure is perceived as secure, rules exist, are broadly understood, increased confidence that agreements will be kept, increased ability to negotiate effectively with external actors. These outcomes are the response. Uh, 
are the are the response to investments. So, you know, successful uh, government uh, NGOs communities need to be mindful that significant investment is is necessary to achieve uh, these changes in perceptions of risk and assurance that create context favorable to investment, inward investment and external investment. And here we see the the manifestations of, of investment that's a result of these investments in institutions, uh, basically. Um, and so we see various investments in, in the capacities related to doing business and uh, managing it and, and, and producing uh, timber and other products uh, from, the, uh, from the forests. And, and ultimately, we see positive environmental, social, and financial returns, enhance forest conditions, increase in livelihoods, uh, political empowerment, and financial uh, viability. So uh, just summing, so this, <laughs> sorry, this this slide ties it all together, and you can have a chance to you'll see it, so there's interrelations if you want to look, interrelations if you want to look closer later on. So summing up, so in the cases that we considered, devolution of rights to communities has catalyzed investment in collectively held forests and other natural resources. Rights recognition and devolution is a catalyst for investment that for the most part would otherwise not have happened in the absence of rights devolution. Investment readiness is a process of internal and external social and economic development that unfolds through stages. The emergence of legitimate community level governance organizations is an important precondition to attracting and retaining investor interest. Investors need someone, an entity to negotiate with that has standing and legitimacy. Community force enterprises really should be seen as social enterprises. And you know, we've this has become clearer as we've gotten sort of look more closely at the character of, of the enterprises of that, uh, that 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 are operating. This is where resources are collectively held. All grant holders all right holders benefit from investment and significant revenue generated is invested in public goods. On balance, a greater proportion of the revenue generation generally goes into roads, health, and education at, by virtue of decisions by the community. They want to see those monies go back into collective benefits. In one concession in Guatemala, for instance, the money was going into a scholarship fund and local children uh, to uh, high schools outside of the area because there were there wasn't good secondary education in the area. These are scholarships that were, that were being paid for by revenues from uh, timber and other activities. But we've also seen gains in local in income uh, and the strengthening of collective tenures has shown to lead directly to household level investment in housing education and health. Just by virtue of recognizing the rights People at the household level use more of their own savings to invest in their housing because there's also a general sense of security that arises with respect to domestic investment. We've been talking about investment in natural resources, but but there's a sense of security with respect to we're here, we're recognized, we can invest in housing. Forest cover has improved in Guatemala and Nepal, and wildlife in Namibia seen tremendous increases in, in wildlife. Uh, numbers in the range of, of wildlife. Uh, then successful outcomes, once again, are more likely where the roles of community, state, and market are seen by all parties as linked to systems of social innovation. Everyone needs to rethink, reconsider what you know what they need to do in terms of their own institutional uh, arrangements, uh, how staff are trained, what kinds of uh, skills are valued uh, in uh, in supporting uh, community-based forest enterprises. This is recognized in Mexico and Namibia, especially, frankly, less so in Guatemala and Nepal, and we can speak to some of those questions subsequently. Um, and so here's our bibliography, and there's a couple of links that you might find useful. First is a guide to investing in collectively held resources, and a video on really speaking especially to the experiences of women and the benefits that accrue uh, due to rights devolution. So thank you very much. Okay.
<clears throat> Great. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, that was very informative. Uh, and uh, it was uh, nice to hear kind of like the summary of, of the implications of, of the body of research at, at the end. And, and, and I think uh, uh, I, I certainly learned a lot and I hope everyone else did. Uh, we had, uh, let me start off with a, a question that's come in, um, which was about something you said toward the end of your uh -huh. uh, webinar, which was about the, the need to have the different parties being aligned. Yes. You know, they have to know their roles, play their roles right. for, for community uh, right. force management to be successful. Right. So there is a two-part question. One is on uh, whether you have some examples of uh, success where that's happened, mm -hmm. maybe including your case studies or, mm -hmm. or beyond. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what actually did uh, the different players or the government as a leader perhaps uh, do Mm -hmm. To you know, what actions did they take to make sure that that, that yeah that it did the yeah yeah okay that's great thanks well um, uh, let me offer an example first from outside of the forestry sector and um, an analogous experience though in fact in the 1980s maybe earlier uh, the government of Philippines decided that they were going to reform the irrigation sector. Uh, and the system was, you know, government owned the whole irrigation. And they managed it, including the delivery of water to the farm level, the individual farm level. And so a decision was taken, well, this isn't very efficient. Let's see if we can hand over the rights to uh, managing irrigation water at the local level, at the village level, to the community. And the outcomes might be better because people are there. They know what farms need what water when, and they can sort of police and, and manage uh, forest, uh, sorry, water use in ways that are hopefully more efficient and equitable. So there was a new law promulgated. It gave management rights to villages over water, over irrigation. Law went into effect. But the Ministry of Irrigation continued to act as a fact. They nothing had changed, and so their local agents, representatives, were trying to manage the water. Okay, and so it was a recognition, and this is really the key point, and we see this in, especially in the forestry sector, that if you're no longer policing use at the local level, or in the case of forest, you're no longer directly regulating whether or not you know what trees can be harvested okay, or what non-timber forest project products can be collected in and what volume then um what is your role mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what is your role yeah. and so it's really about right. rethinking your role as an institution in light of the fact that so many of the management and regulatory and use decisions are embodied in the rights that have been given to so what it is is, you know, the, in the, the agencies haven't got the memo that yeah. it's things have changed. Right. And so for a forestry agency, it means moving away from being a fundamentally enforcement agency, one that has an element of it, has some enforcement or ready for it, but to being supportive, helping with planning, mm -hmm. building capacity, uh, developing market relationships. Uh, it's a different kind of role. And the challenge, Frank, is that that requires a lot of thinking and investment in its own terms. Because staff are not trained to do those kinds of things. And I, I've argued for some time that donors may be overlooking an important investment opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, in the in the forest agency, in the in the government sector, because the implications of the rights revolution. Are quite significant for their roles, their skills, their priorities as well. That's the point I would make. In terms of good examples, I would, uh, I mean, one of the challenges in Nepal now, and I've been there recently, is that the agent, the force agency is no longer regulating uh, and uh, no longer sort of directly regulating, but they're coming up with new kinds of regulations. Particularly affect marketing that have had the effect of of, uh, of of stifling enterprise. This is being argued, okay, and that 
getting your permit, uh, and so on, is becoming a burdensome bureaucratic process. And, and that's problematic. Uh, that's seen as problematic by a lot of people working in the country. Uh, in Mexico, you know, there's a strong experience in the Hijitos as effective institutions, a lot of political power in their own right. And, and they're left pretty much to manage uh, the forests on their own with very little direct regulation and based on a strong tradition of collective management of forests. Um, so those are a couple of examples. I hope that's responsive. Yeah. Maybe just a, a follow-up then yeah. uh, in terms of the different parties that need to be aligned. And yeah. the tables that you had for Guatemala and yeah. uh, Nepal, I noted that in the column on private sector, it kind of says limited, kind of limited yes. uh, uh, actions so far. Yes. So is that a kind of a, a fatal flaw or is it just a kind of a, it would be better if they could, but they're not, it's yeah. not necessary because you have shown successes even without, with that limited uh, so maybe the, I guess the question is, can you say a few words about the private sector? Yes. What, 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 what would be the, the most uh, needed types of investments from the private sector, given that you have community forest institutions also? Right, yes, yeah. Well, the private sector is, is interested in the products, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I think the more successful, a more kind of uh, maybe ones that Bear some attention investments have been actually in Nepal, where you have local businesses, uh, Nepalese businesses, some of which have are connected to sort of international markets um, that see value in, in forest based enterprises, uh, including timber, but mainly non timber forest products. Uh, charcoal, for instance, is a main product from timber forest um, in, in Nepal. Uh, essential oils, and if you take a look at the video, you'll see an example of uh, of a community forest user group where a, where a local businessman who has strong links to sort of international essential oils markets uh, has established a, a small uh, distillery to distill um, essential oils from lemongrass. And so photo on our title page of the women you know, of our PowerPoint today is of women in Nepal harvesting lemongrass that actually is distilled on site. So that's an example of a, a good. The supply chain links in Guatemala are quite sophisticated. Uh, for instance, the mahogany that's coming in, some part of the mahogany is coming out of the mine biosphere reserve going into uh, is being sold to Gibson guitars in the United States to manufacture the guitar handles, cars, and and the, they're milled. Uh, you know that product is milled to the sort of basic you know uh, uh, shape of the uh, individual uh, guitar handle. You know, in you know by the, the collectively owned timber mill in the Flores. So that's a high value product. Uh, so that's an example. Um, one of the bigger challenges is that uh, there's tremendous scope for added investment, but in, investors are having a hard time finding those. And these are they're not really looking for them. And we see in sort of the global movement around ESG finance, environmental, social, and governance finance, significant amounts of capital are going into various kinds of investment funds. Those monies are going mainly, you know, to sectors where there are pretty sort of strong portals that are sort of able to, to absorb that, that funding like transportation, housing, uh, energy. Uh, but the land use sector presents a number of challenges with respect to small scale uh, information, climate, particular, particular kinds of climate risk. So I think uh, venturesome investors have, you know, some real opportunities here. But, uh, you know, more effort in sort of making those connections. Um, so uh, in terms of the, when, so different actors are making decisions about mm -hmm. whether to invest or not. Right. And uh, obviously the economic uh, return, returns you're showing are a factor yeah. for certain investors. How about social returns? You know, you yeah. talked about equity, you talked about gender right. a little bit, yeah. about other things. How, 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 how are those entering the decision-making framework of the different 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, certainly at the community level, it's very, very strong. Um, that uh, you know, if you visit a community forest user group membership uh, meeting or board meeting, local board meeting, you'll see very strong representation from every section of the community. Uh, you often see women in leadership. Uh, I really hope that people have a chance to look at the video from the fall because women themselves are speaking to the dignity of the rights to their personal lives. One woman says, before I had rights, I had nothing. Uh, my, my husband didn't respect me. Now I'm sort of in the world, you know, and able to generate income for the household, and I have a real measure of economy. It's really quite striking. Uh, and this is what one hopes rights do. So, um, but a key, a key idea here, once again, is that if it's collective ownership, everyone in the collective has the expectation that they're going to share in the benefits. And so the example of, sort of job sharing I offered uh, in, uh, in one of the concessions I visited in Guatemala is an example of that. This is an enterprise that was processing uh, a non-tiber forest product called Kadi, which is exported to the United States as something that goes with the oral arrangements. It's a, uh, you know, it's a plant that is for flowers, you know, yeah. and it, it's long lived. If it's properly managed, it's good for 60 days, for instance. So a lot of that's coming out of in the forest. It's a non it's a non forest product. But the women especially were sharing jobs uh, and in a, in a way that ensured that everyone who wanted to work had a chance for some capital. So there's, at that level, there's very strong mindfulness of social role of the... And then uh, just kind of a related question that came in was, uh, so then there are these, you mentioned these, that uh, a lot of the... Uh, Revenue that's generated is used for public goods, or education, right. and roads, and so yes. forth. But then there is also a need to, to compensate, I guess, the people who are more involved, right? Right. Who provide more? Yeah. And so, are those issues that the communities struggle with, or is that something that you find generally they can work work out? No, it's an important yeah. question, <laughs> and we find that in lots of cooperative. You know, there's sort of a challenge for cooperative business models yeah. everywhere. Is that you know there may be you know the, the manager of the cooperative would expect to be paid more. And if you're going to get a you know a really talented skilled yeah. co-op manager who's going to you know you can rely on then you're going to need the market yeah. for that. Okay. <laughs> and then right. you can see resentment uh, among the members some part of the membership. Well, yeah, this is a cooperative and you know well maybe I can do that job better or whatever. <laughs> so these kinds of tensions are familiar tension. But I th we find, for instance, in well, I'm just come back to the Paul again because it was one of our that that because of the sort of it's been historically a lot of employment has been provided by the forestry sector, uh, and so we see in the community forest use a, a fair number of retired forestry officials come home, mm -hmm. so they're offering their technical skills. Maybe on the board, they may be in a leadership. What they can especially do, local district forestry officer over regulatory issues. That's a vital kind of role that we see, and that's recognized and appreciated. And that person may be not being paid at all. Uh, he typically have a pension and he's come home uh, after a career in the civil service. Not only in the, in the forestry sector, but in other sectors. Fairly often, yeah. interestingly, another kind of public investment. Right. In, uh, Let me try to wind up maybe with two questions. One is yeah. that uh, your your chart uh, looking at uh, kind of the from lower to uh, higher levels of devolution and, and mm -hmm. the differences across the continent. So Africa obviously was yes. to the left. So what's the what's the, what's holding uh, yeah. Africa back, maybe mm -hmm. mostly um, in terms of the, the movement yeah. towards devolution? Yeah, yeah. And then and then related to that, what's the role of research, and where do you see research going to help inform that process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's a very 
challenging question and a very important one. <clears throat> and there are different sort of, I think, uh, dimensions in that to this, and that um, there is such a strong, uh, and this has been across the globe, but you know, the, during the colonial era, globally, the state assumed ownership, forestry sector, especially for, you know, for economic revenue purposes, you know, this, this is important revenue for states, many settings, timber, control the timber industry license, you know, for extraction uh, at scale, and also then subsequently for conservation arguments and so on. And so there's a counter movement, you know, that is out there also that in a, in a global counter movement that raises questions about rights and revolutions in relation to climate and biodiversity outcomes. So there's a, there's a tension there. And arguably in Africa, you know, the concept that the forest protection element of this argument uh, in favor that really favors state ownership. The traditional part of the state, uh, uh, the estate belongs to the state, and we can ensure a better outcome. Well, that's that's one of the arguments in the mix against rights to evolution. And, and maybe in some other places, there's been greater progress in looking and making the case for co-benefits uh, that we've seen cases, including in the the uh, Patan and my advisory reserve, where that is a conservation area also. It's surrounded by high levels of protection of these, <clears throat> these forests. And in fact, there, there is, there's a coexistence between wildlife uh, populations and, and sustainable community use. And the wildlife elements are accounted for in the management plan certified by the Forest Stewardship Council. That's one of the kind of criteria. So we can see where joint benefits are possible and and where we see uptake of that of that ethic we see greater progress i think the best example in africa is Namibia, where communities own the wildlife and let's be clear here this is really quite distinct from the typical conservation of wildlife in africa so that's something really worth looking at 20 percent of the land area of Namibia, a country larger than france under the control of community wildlife concessions, and where the environmental outcomes have been tremendous in terms of animal populations and in terms of range of line range and elephant range and so on. So that's a positive model. But as a generalization, coming, you know, another factor in Africa is the uh, generally positive thing, which is the persistent customary tenure. So I think something that's not being captured here in these data is the extent to which if people honor customary tenure. There's not a lot of demand for the title, as is the case in Latin America. So these forests and, and forests and are typically titled, elected titles, because title is the way you secure rights in Latin America. It's sort of the name of the game. And people know and understand that the system honors title. And that's not the case in most of Africa. Most agricultural land, uh, most you know, pasture lands and so on are held under customary arrangements. So title isn't seen as the answer. Clear recognition statutorily of the rights associated with customary tenure. We see uh, people getting uh, emphasis when we see that recognized in constitutional reforms, including in Kenya. Uh, the statutory recognition of tribal land and customary So I'm hopeful that we'll see more inclusion of forests. For instance, uh, Ethiopia uh, last year promulgated the 2018 forest proclamation that would give rights to communities to their forests. And it's been very successful experience. And Tim has worked a lot on this, on recognizing, certifying, agricultural land rights at the farm level in a cost-effective way. It's had very positive outcomes. In the well, that sort of model is being picked up and applied the forestry sector. So there is there is promise for, for greater, but there's there's uh, you know, uh, less commitment today, uh, certainly in the, in the level of the forestry agencies, which are vital. 
to effective lens evolution in Africa. Well, great. I think we've come to the end of our, our time. <laughs> so uh, I'll wrap this up. Uh, I want to um, just say a couple of things is that uh, for those of us in, in the CGIR, we have uh, some targets that we're trying to achieve. Amongst them, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce deforestation, and restore degraded land. Mm -hmm. And if you think about all of those, you realize the talk that Patrick took up today is vitally important for us uh, reaching any of those targets. Um, it's not a technological fix as much as it is an institutional fix. And so I think uh, the topic is uh, uh, today was was uh, very important, and uh, the theme of governance and natural resources. Uh, you know, it's something that's not going to go away from the CG. Um, and uh, so we're thrilled uh, to have had this presentation. And thank you very much, uh, Steve, for your insights. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, everyone.